the world's furthest leaning man-made tower has just been built here in the UAE. Have you seen this building? Have you seen pictures of this building? Some of you have. It's a building that literally leans 18 degrees to the side. It's an unbelievable building. You know, it starts out straight and then just, just leans. I don't know about you, but I don't think I'd want to be the first person staying in a hotel on the top of that building. It leans so much that the Guinness Book of World Records has deleted a historical icon. The Leaning Tower of Pisa has been deleted, banished forever, and the Capitol Gate building of Abu Dhabi has now been entered in. It leans five times further than the Tower of Pisa. However, unlike the Tower of Pisa, it was built to lean. It was built with the intention of leaning. Like this. It leans. So the big question being asked this month is, how do they do it? How do they build this tower to lean 18 degrees to the side? Well, if you read about it on Wikipedia and other places, you can find truth about this tower. And for the first 12 floors, they built it just like any normal building, stacking floor plate after floor plate right above one another. After the 12th floor, they started building, building them on top, but a little further forward to create this, this lean of 18 degrees. But in order for the building to stay sturdy and to protect those hotel guests on the top floor, they had to build a super strong and sturdy exoskeleton inside this building. They built it with concrete and steel to carry the weight of the floor as to not need pillars and as to keep the lean. So there's a lot going on in this building that one cannot see from the outside. There's a whole lot going on to keep this building stable. See, for this building to work, it needed some serious internal stabilizers. For a tall building, even just here in the UAE, built on sand, uh, in the heat and with the wind, that's one thing. But then to build it in world record fashion needed quite a strong support system internally for it to work out. When as I read about the Capitol Gate building this week in preparation for the sermon, I realized that this is a lot like our lives. Our lives here in the UAE can be incredibly unstable, right? In most of history, most people in most times and most places lived in the same place, did the same job. Basically, you did the same job your mom or, or father did, and you, you followed suit. Here, obviously, we have all moved here from somewhere else, or we grew up here away from um, our home country, doing various jobs. And today, we know that our jobs may be unstable, our finances are unstable, our families are unstable, our feelings are unstable. Not to depress us this morning, but, but, but a lot of these things are, are unstable. That's just the reality. They're unstable. But the one thing these days, the kind of the one thing we can be sure of is there's only a few things we can be sure of, right? Well, as you think about that this morning, what about you this morning? As you face unstable times, are you a person who has an internal structure that's perhaps not quite stable? Is there something going on beneath the surface that's not right? Perhaps even today, maybe you're dressed nicely, maybe you have a smile on your face, your hair is done, and as you shake hands, you look all right, but perhaps beneath the surface, there is something else going on. Maybe the internal support is falling apart. So how do we build stability 
How do we have this internal stability? Well, Paul's going to tell us this morning how to do it. This man who's been beaten time and time again, he's alone, he's in prison for his faith. We know that he's been shipwrecked, as we've talked about. He's been betrayed. He's been uh, beaten with rods a number of occasions, almost left for dead. And yet he can tell us last week in Philippians 3 that he runs after the prize, that he strains for what's ahead to gain Christ. How can he do this? He's going to show us today that it's because he has an internal stabilizer called the peace of God. The peace of God. So turn with me to Philippians uh, chapter 4 as we continue in this wonderful book about joy. We're going to look today at verses 2 through verses 9. And this morning we'll see the joy of peace. The joy of peace. And we're going to see it in two different sections. First, he's going to talk about peace in the church. Then he'll turn and talk about peace in the heart. So the church and the heart. Let's first look at peace in the church. Look with me in verse 2. I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, Help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Let's stop there. Now here's the situation. Here's the situation. There's two women, Judea and Syntyche, And there's a big problem between the two of them. They're fighting, and they can't seem to get past it. And it's causing a big problem in the church. It's causing division in the church. But notice that the text doesn't just say these are two ordinary women in the church. It says that these are women who have worked with Paul in the cause of the gospel. They have been gospel workers with Paul on the forefront of evangelism in Philippi, doing ministry with Paul, and under Paul's leadership. And notice in Paul's rebuke, there's no hint of heresy or immorality in his rebuke. And we know that Paul's not afraid to call people out, isn't he? You see the whole book of Galatians. He says, you foolish Galatians, get it right. Stop believing that stuff. He gets in their face. He calls them out. We even see that he calls Peter out uh, for a compromising uh, behavior, compromising, compromising action. So Paul gets in your face if you're uh, pushing forth some heresy or believing in some way to lead others astray. He'll get in your face. He'll, he'll also call out specific sin. Uh, we see that as well. He's not afraid to do it to protect the church. But now here's what we need to see here. This is, this is not a primary doctrine issue uh, or a specific sin, but it is a severe enough problem for Paul to include it in the letter. And he calls these two ladies out by name. This letter would have been read publicly to the church. Can you imagine these ladies, how they would have felt with their names read aloud in front of the whole church? I mean, it would be similar to me getting out this morning and calling your name out in front of everyone. It would be something like this. Glenn Jones, Lenny Mathiah, stop fighting. You're acting like children. And Max Stiles, once you go over there and help them out, help them figure it out. I mean, that's basically what Paul is doing here. He calls out these two ladies and then asks someone else in the church who's unnamed to go and to help these two ladies get along and deal with their problems. Incredibly embarrassing and humbling and shocking. 
But his intention wasn't to shame them. His intention was for them to be unified. His intention was for them to to serve God together without this this dividing wall. But let's stop there. Let's stop there just just for a quick minute and and I think it's important for us to 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 look at the question of is there anything in the church that's okay for us to fight about? Is there anything in the church that should cause divisions? I think there's about two things. I've mentioned them briefly. But as a church and as a church member, we always fight against sin and we fight against false doctrine. We always fight about those things. We don't let those things go. First, we fight about sin. We, we do that because of the purity of the church. This is why we take sin so seriously, because it can destroy the church and ruin our witness. So in verse 3, Paul is asking the church to help these ladies. Now, we don't know who this loyal yoke fellow is, but we know it's somebody in the church who would have heard the letter and hopefully would have come to aid of these ladies. Incidentally, this is why we have church membership, as Mac mentioned. This is why we are moving our church towards creating our first membership up in September and October. Uh, We form that so that we can get to know one another, so the church leadership knows who's in the church, who's committing. We can get a sense of how people are doing spiritually uh, to help aid in our spiritual growth and fight sin together. Uh, As a a church, we need to always fight and disagree with the sinner who won't repent, who won't uh, come uh, to an agreement to fight it. See, we need the church. Each of us needs the church. You need the church and I need you. We need one another to fight sin together, to grow spiritually. And so we always fight against the sinner who is unrepentant. And so in church membership, we have something called church discipline when a member of our church won't fight sin, won't deal with sin, won't repent. Uh, We deal with it with the church to help them, hopefully restore them, that one day they will repent. So that's one thing we fight against the unrepentant sinner. The second thing, we fight against false doctrine. We always fight and divide over false doctrine. And this doesn't mean just any doctrine. This means the essential doctrines to the Christian faith. We, we believe uh, in the Bible as the Word of God, the Trinity, one God in three persons. Jesus is God, born of a virgin, lived without sin, died on the cross, rose from the dead. We are all sinners and deserve death. He's the only way to salvation and Christ is coming back. Those are the essentials that I just breeze through really quickly there. Those are things that we fight for. Those are things that we, we divide, we confront about. Now, other things uh, like when Jesus is coming back or how we do our church services, things like that we never divide over. We always stay unified over. So the church would fight against false doctrine, but we see here that that's not what Paul is talking about. So we need to clarify that. He says, whatever Judea and Syntyche are fighting for, Paul tells them to agree in the Lord. He tells them to stop fighting. Perhaps they're fighting over some ministry in the church, or maybe one of them hurt the other verbally, and now they're both bitter against each other. We, we have no idea. We can speculate. We don't know for sure. Now, while Paul doesn't tell us what they're disagreeing about, he also doesn't tell us, uh, he also doesn't seem to take a balanced look at each side uh, and who really is wrong in the dispute. He doesn't say to one or the other, you're wrong, go and apologize to your sister. He doesn't sit on the fence and say, well, there are two sides to every story. You're partly right, you're partly wrong, so kiss and make up, come together. He, he doesn't do that either. It's not a matter of who's right and who's wrong or what rightness or wrongness exists on each side. 
Paul says, I plead with Eudia and I plead with Syntyche. He pleads with both of them. No doubt each lady thought they were right. The other was wrong. But Paul says each is under the same obligation to go to the other, to apologize, to be unified. Each one is to make the first move. No, relationships are just messy sometimes. They're just messy. Perhaps this was a situation when one wronged the other. But neither is to wait. Neither is to wait for the other. And this is true for us. Maybe you can't see how you've hurt another person. But we're still to go to that person and apologize for hurting them. Maybe even confessing you don't know exactly why you've hurt them. But apologize for hurting their feelings. And and talk it through. And be unified. Never pointing the finger that it's the other person's fault that they're hurting. Well, Paul gives us further help on what will bring peace to the church. Look again at verse 5. He says, Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. What will help bring peace to the church? Paul tells us gentleness. That's not at all what we'd expect from him at this point, because it's not what we want to be known for, is it? I mean, how many of us want to be known for in this life gentleness? Instead, perhaps we've wanted to be known for good looks or a sense of humor or wealth or status. Or perhaps you're more pious and you want to be known for your Bible teaching skills or your prayer life. But Paul cuts to the heart of the issue and he says, be known for gentleness. Let it be evident to all. Imagine if each of us were known for this. If each and every one of us were known for gentleness, it would transform our lives. It would transform our church. If each of us were kind and sensitive, not in competition, but in partnership. And Paul says we are to do this because the Lord is near. Do you catch that? We, we don't know for sure if Paul's talking about the nearness of the Holy Spirit we see in John 14 and other places, or the nearness of his return, though it could be both. Either way, Paul is giving us the idea that God himself is near. We haven't been left alone. Maybe you're struggling to be gentle with the person you're in conflict with. Consider that the Lord is near and he will one day set matters right. We can trust in that. You don't have to take the pressure of setting matters right on your own. Suppose with me for a moment if Jesus entered the room where you and your friend were seated. And suppose there was no doubt in anybody's mind as to Christ's identity. How would you respond if you're there with the friend that you're disagreeing with? Would you immediately rush up to Jesus and show him how amazing you are and argue that it's that person's fault as he shows you his scars? Would you even be concerned about self-promotion and arguing that you're right? Paul's telling us, let your gentleness be known to all, even those you're in disagreement with, because in fact, the Lord is near. What Paul is reminding us is the reason we can't often deal with other people or our circumstances is because we have forgotten who we are. We've forgotten what Christ has done. Remember last week, we said that we're a citizen not of this country or our home country, but we're a citizen of heaven. And those brothers and sisters in Christ that you are divided from are also citizens. You're fighting with one who has been bought by the blood of Jesus. 
when you fight with another Christian. This is a good time to remind us that next week we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is a meal that believers in Christ take part as a memorial to Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. The Bible is clear that we are not to take part in it if there's any unrepented sin that we haven't dealt with yet. So I encourage you this week to assess if in your life there is sin that hasn't been dealt with yet, if there is sin that you haven't repented of, in particular with somebody else in this congregation. So fellow Christian, I ask you today, is there someone in this church that you are unreconciled to? Are there relationships that are out of joint? Are there people that you're ignoring? Is there any bitterness in your heart? Do you have anger towards one of God's children? See, God knows your heart. He knows it. And you can't come to our church services and worshipfully sing praises to God while you're bitter at a fellow Christian as they sing praises to God on the other side of the room. God is in no way honored by that. Perhaps this hits a little closer to home for some. Maybe there's not only division between you and someone in this church, but between you and someone in your home. Husbands and wives, are you reconciled to one another? Is there disunity under your roof? I urge you to take care of this today. Don't let the sun go down on your anger a problem is never one-sided. And if both of you are Christians, then you must look at your spouse as one for whom Christ has loved so much to die for him or to die for her. So reconcile today. Fight off the pride. I know a lot of it is just pride, not wanting to admit you're wrong, not wanting to take that first step. So fight it off. Even if you weren't the one that started the conflict, By being bitter and angry, you are now a big part of the conflict. So remember that you have vowed before God to love each other sacrificially until death. So take steps to fulfill that vow. Repent of your sin and pursue one another. Maybe it's not just one big thing in your marriage. Perhaps it's a long period of bitterness that has crept in your home. Either way, apologize for your part and begin to love your spouse in a way that honors God. Well, as I studied this passage and thought through these first few verses, I thought of a quick list of six things that might help us be unified with one another as a church. Six things, I'll go through these six rather quickly. One is to assume the best in believers. Assume the best in believers. When someone hurts you, assume that as a Christian, that person not only seeks to serve God, but but assume that they're not trying to be evil, that they're not trying to hurt you. Perhaps they're one who is struggling for various reasons, and maybe it's not about you anyway. A lot of tension will cease when we don't assume everyone has bad motives in their actions. Two, I encourage you to pray for them. Ask for God to bless them and to heal your relationship. The more and more you pray for someone that's hurt you, the more your affections for them are stirred by God. Thirdly, get clarification from someone who hurts you. Get clarification from one who hurts you. We have over 50 different nationalities here in our church. 
It's wonderful. It's one of my favorite things about being here in Dubai. I love it how we have potlucks where you can have pani puri next to uh, uh, Dunkin' Donuts, next to a plate of hummus, all spread across the table. I love it. I love how you can get to know not only different foods, but different people from all around the world. It's been a great blessing for me. I've learned a lot from each of you, both personally and spiritually. It's been a wonderful time. But in the process, it's likely that we all say things to one another that are misunderstood and are oftentimes even hurtful. So let's be careful to get clarification from others rather than let bitterness creep in. And perhaps in the process, we'll learn to appreciate our different cultures even more. Well, fourthly, be quick to forgive. Be quick to forgive. When someone hurts us, we need to remember who we are. When another Christian hurts, hurts us, remember that we forgive them because we have already been forgiven. See, forgiving flows from forgiveness. We are always willing to show love to others when we are freshly mindful of the love God has shown us in the gospel. Fifthly, fight for joy. Fight for joy. That's what this book has been about. And that's what verse 4 says. Look back at verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Imagine what our unity would be like if each and every one of us fought for joy and rejoiced. There's one thing possibly to forgive, but do do you stay bitter and angry afterwards? Paul tells us that we can find joy in such a circumstance because our grounds for joy isn't in that other person. Our grounds for joy is never in another person or our ever-changing circumstances, but our joy is always in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. For joy isn't anything else, and our circumstances change, then we become miserable. Our joy must be in the Lord. And sixthly, remember the gospel. Remember the gospel. Remember it's the gospel that we need to have perfect agreement on. And remember that the person you're in conflict with, Paul tells us in verse 3, is one whose name is written in the book of life. One whose name is written in the book of life. Now, this book is not a book that lists and records everything you've done in your life. The Bible says that the book of life is a book that records all the names of all the people God has determined to save. To be in the book is to be reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. Through his atoning sacrifice on the cross. So this person you're fighting with is one who Jesus bled and died for. They're one who is infinitely valuable to God as one who's written in the book of life. So they should be valuable to you as well. Well, if you're here today and you're not a follower of Christ... You're not a Christian. The book of life is the most important thing we're going to talk about today. It's not a book that you can go in and write your own name in. Only God can. The verdict has already been passed. We are all guilty. None of us have lived in a way that truly pleases the Almighty God. And by rebelling against God, we have earned His judgment and His wrath. And on the last day, when those books, when the book of life is closed... There is no more hope. Friends, God has determined to write something else other than the events of your life. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on human flesh and lived on the earth a perfect life in front of man's eyes and in front of God's eyes 
Now, if the book were open on Jesus' life, there's nothing that would lead to a guilty verdict. And yet Jesus took his life, this perfect one, offered it up as a sacrifice on the cross to take the punishment that you deserved, to take the punishment that I deserved, feeling the very wrath and judgment of God upon himself, down to the very last drop of penalty. And to prove that God accepted the sacrifice, we know that three days later, Christ rose from the dead and now, and now is seated at the right hand of the Father. And what he tells us today is that if you, if you would believe in Christ, if you would place your faith in Jesus and repent of your sin, turning away from your sin, the Bible says that God will make sure your name is written, written in the book of life. I urge you today, there is no more important truth to deal with than that today. If you came with someone today, someone invited you, I encourage you to talk to them about your questions or concerns about following Jesus. Or come and talk to me or any of the staff or elders after the service. We would love to talk to you about these things of first importance. So the first thing that we see here is peace in the church. Peace in the church. Now Paul's going to transition to the second part of the passage, to the second point, peace in the heart. Look with me at verses 6 through 9. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Now, this passage really hits home for me, you know, anxiety. Anxiety really comes down to worrying about the future. And worry is really unbelief that God really does mean good for me and for him in the future. But the future is a place that God already knows about. And not only that, but he planned it, and now he stands outside of time. He stands outside of time in total control over all of your circumstances. So what do you and I have to be anxious about? So even when we get that terrible phone call, what do you have to be anxious about in that moment? Which one of you, by worrying, can add a single moment to your life? Which of you, by worrying, can change the thing you are worrying about? Now this is hard. This is hard. I know I am so anxious. This is a struggle of mine. Even in the little things, I have reminded of my anxiety. I'm reminded every time I get on an airplane. Uh, it comes just, at, just for a split second in the middle of the flight. You know, when, when we're up in the sky and we hit some turbulence, and instantly I remember that we're 10,000 meters high in the sky, flying in a metal cylinder object, 10,000 meters over a big sea, big ocean with nothing underneath me. And just for a split second, with some deep turbulence, I get nervous, get a little anxious. 
But it also comes in bigger things. Like when I was outside of that operating room a few weeks ago, waiting for surgery on my elbow, nervous both at the, at the time of, for, the, for the surgery itself and whether it would get canceled, whether I would have it or not. But see, God is in control. He was in control that entire day. He's planned all things for our good and for his glory. But Paul knows this is a struggle for us. God knows it's a struggle for us. And so he gives us here the cure for anxiety. This is the great medicine for this incredibly painful and distracting disease. He gives us three things to achieve peace. He tells us to pray, to think about holy things, and to act in obedience. To pray, to think, to act. Now, this morning, I just have time to focus on the first one. I want to spend time on the first one to pray because it's been revolutionary for me and helpful for others, and I hope it'll be helpful for you as well. Look at verse 6. Paul tells us, if you want to get rid of worry, if you want to get rid of anxiety, pray. But not only pray, pray with, what does it say? Pray with thanksgiving. He gives us a specific kind of prayer. Now you might say, how can I pray like that when I don't know how God is going to answer? How do I thank God if I don't get that job? Now, what Paul's urging us to do here is that you and I actually thank God ahead of time for the entire range of responses. You have to envision all responses ahead of time and to pray with thanksgiving. Now, this is easier said uh, than done. Much easier said than done. But this means we pray something like, like this. God, I, I really want this surgery, and I, I pray for healing, but you are a good God. And even if this surgery doesn't happen, I thank you, and I'm excited to see what you have planned in my life during this time. And I pray you'll give me grace, the grace that I need to follow you through whatever paths you take me on. See, this is a God, a God that we have here, is one who knows so much more than we do. And in prayer... In prayer, when we pray with thanksgiving, we begin to see the world through the eyes of his wise love. Anytime you're suffering, you must insist to see it through the cross. Think about the cross for a moment. Now, why did the disciples run away? Why did they run away scared and crying? because they were looking at the cross and they were saying, nothing good can come out of this. This terrible tool of execution. For the disciples, it was a moment of utter and total defeat. You know, we've been following this man for three years and he's the savior of the world, yet he's being mocked. He's being spit on. He's being beaten, despised, ridiculed, and then hung on a tree between two thieves to die. So the disciples were scared. They ran away. We see that Peter, we give him a, a, a lot of our, we pass a lot of judgment towards him because he, he uh, turns down these different people that come up to him. He, he turns away from Christ. He says, I don't even know this man. And then he weeps right after he denies Christ the third time. And then he runs away. And we don't even know. It looks like all the other disciples have, have ran away. Why did they run away? It's because their Savior was, was defeated. Dying, dead, 
But we know when we look at the cross that we are looking at the greatest moment of love and wisdom in the history of the universe. The disciples just didn't see it that way. And they ran away. This is not far from our struggles. We just don't see it. We don't, we don't see the big picture of what God is doing in our lives. Since God is the creator God and in control of the whole world, planning the whole world and everything in it, it means that we don't know more of the big picture than a three-year-old would of their lives today. You know, our daughter Eliza, she can't understand when it's time for her to go to bed or when her friend has to go home after playtime. She can't understand why she can't eat all ten chocolates that are sitting in our living room after already finishing a big pink cupcake. She would gladly eat all those chocolates in one setting. She's begging for them. She's complaining to us and kicking and screaming because we take them away. But we stop her because we know eating ten chocolates and eating a cupcake will certainly result in a stomach ache and much pain and suffering, not only for her, but for her parents. <laughs> she doesn't see the big picture. She doesn't get it. She's three. She doesn't know what's best for her. As it is with us, since we have a sovereign God in control of everything, there is no way that we can see more of God's picture than a young child can see of theirs. It wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense if everything made sense. Do you see that? We don't see the big picture, and yet here we're instructed by Paul as the medicine for anxiety to pray with thanksgiving because, because remember Romans 8.28? That God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He works all things together for our good and for his glory. So every surgery cancellation is for our good and God's glory. Every loss of a job is for our good and God's glory. Everything that happens in our lives is for our good and God's glory. And so we thank him if he doesn't provide that job for us. We thank him if he doesn't heal us. And we thank him if he does. John Newton, the great hymn writer, once said, everything God lets through must be necessary and everything he doesn't let through couldn't be necessary and so because of god's wise love a few weeks ago when you knew i was going into surgery even though those those operating room doors went open and i began to get wheeled in it couldn't have been necessary for me to go through surgery that day because it wasn't part of god's great plan so even in that moment when i was devastated initially and couldn't understand why we realized that it was for my good and God's glory. So in our trials, in our circumstances, we are called to pray with thanksgiving as the medicine for our anxiety. Do you do this on a regular basis? Do you pray about your worries? Or do you just worry about your worries? Do you talk to a friend more about your worries than you do to God? Do you ask other people to pray about your worries more than you pray about your worries? Are your prayers filled with thankfulness to God or just a laundry list of your needs and wants? Don Carson has said that he has yet to meet a worrier who enjoys an excellent prayer life. 
And that's because verse 7 tells us what happens to us when we, when we pray with thanksgiving. Here's what God tells us he's going to do with the anxiety in our hearts. He says, And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul says God will fight off that anxiety and he will give you his peace. A confident trust in God's wise control over your life. He's going to give you that peace. Have you noticed, have you ever noticed that that verse doesn't say we'll get all we ask for? We might expect the verse to say, pray with thanksgiving and God will give you your request. But the goal is not the stuff. It's peace. It's God. There's no such thing as the prosperity gospel or the name it and claim it gospel that says you will necessarily get healed or you'll, you'll necessarily get the job you want or get the thing you're asking for. Paul says, pray with thanksgiving and God will give you peace. He may not give you what you ask for, but he promises something so much better. He promises peace. And I love this picture here. One of my, one of my favorite pictures in the Bible here, uh, it says God will guard your hearts and minds. Here the word guard is literally a garrison. Literally means a garrison, which is a number of military troops stationed around a castle to protect it. It's the idea that the walls around the castle are constantly patrolled by these guards. They never sleep. They never take a break. And they will constantly be on alert in the area around our hearts to keep anxiety from entering in. These troops are the guards of the king of kings who will work at all costs, keeping anxiety from getting into our hearts as we pray with thanksgiving. So circumstances come in your lives. Difficulties come. Trials come like raiders, like enemies, trying to take over our hearts and minds. And yet the pastor says that God promises to do something in a supernatural way. He promises to give us a perfect battalion of soldiers surrounding our hearts surrounding our minds, ready to fight off all anxiety that threatens to come and take over. It's a beautiful picture of of peace. To think that when we pray with thanksgiving, something supernaturally is working there that transcends our understanding, where God is fighting off anxiety from entering in. Wonderful picture of peace in our hearts. So Jesus is both the Lord of the church and in our hearts. And he provides peace in both situations. He provides peace in the church and in our hearts. And much like the Capitol Gate building, there needs to be something going on in the inside of our lives to stabilize us. We need to experience the joy of peace. And we need to get this by being unified as a church and by praying with thanksgiving. So let's pray right now and ask for God's grace that we would be unified as a church and that we'd have peace in our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we ask that even today, would those in our church be unified with one another through the gospel? Would there be no division among us Would all broken relationships be unified through Christ? Would all marriages be reconciled at the foot of the cross? 
And would we experience peace both in this church and in our hearts? Help us to trust in your sovereign grace and rely on you in times of trial, praying with thanksgiving for what you're doing in our lives. We pray these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.